to NeuroPodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. To get the most out of this episode, we recommend downloading the supplementary case notes which are available on Vital. Here you'll find more information about the case, including history, examination and investigation findings. We hope you enjoy listening. to this podcast. I'm here with a, a veteran both of this podcast but also of, of neurology, Dr. Uh, Reese Davies. Today we're going to talk about uh, two cases so it's slightly different from usual podcasts but um, hopefully we can get some of the key points across. So uh, should, we, should we go straight into it? We should. Fantastic, okay. So the first case um, which you should be able to see uh, as it's uploaded on Vital is of a 43-year-old right-handed female who works as a marketing director. She presents being off legs. Uh, her history of presenting complaint is that she had a flu-like illness uh, some weeks ago, followed by two days of back pain and some bilateral paresthesia in her feet. This slowly progressed over the last seven weeks or so, um, and she's become increasingly weak in the lower limbs first, and now it's also affecting her hands. She presents to A&E about seven or eight weeks after the onset of symptoms because she's now struggling to stand up out of her chair. She has no past medical history of note. Uh, she has a cholecystectomy in her past surgical history and she's on sertraline. Uh, she doesn't smoke, she doesn't drink any alcohol and she lives at home with her partner and travels often for work. So at this stage, I guess we can just pause for a second and, and, and think about what we know so far. Uh, any comments on that so far, Dr Davies? So you've got a syndrome here involving neurological dysfunction in all four limbs and so you're thinking about that early question in neurological formulation between the possibility of a single lesion at a single site accounting for everything that's observed or perhaps a diffuse disease process. So obviously if you've got weakness in all four limbs, the one site where you could uh, produce that if you had a lesion there would be the upper part of the spinal cord or maybe the brainstem. Uh, often of course you'd have additional problems, certainly if you had a lesion within the brainstem, um, but in principle, a single relatively small lesion at that site could account for weakness in both the arms and the legs. If we're then thinking about the alternative possibility or possibilities, you're talking about diffuse disease. And really, um, you could then talk about disease at every point in the lower motor neurone system or the peripheral nervous system. So they have slightly different boundaries. But if we think about the peripheral nervous system, obviously the, the most proximal point there is the nerve roots. You've then got the plexus structures. You've got the peripheral nerves themselves, the neuromuscular junction, at least in the motor system, uh, and then the muscle tissue. Uh, so, so in fact... Um, you could think of disease, diffuse disease, affecting any of those sites that could cause weakness in all four limbs. If we're talking about 
the lower motor neurons. Um, so this takes you into the anterior horn of the spinal cord. So so the root and the fascicle of the of the uh, uh, motor nerve axons uh, within the CNS obviously is CNS spinal cord tissue, and there's various. Uh, diseases that can affect CNS tissue but I think the one that we would see most commonly although it's not likely here would be a degenerative disease of the motor neuron so obviously that would eventually lead to weakness in all four limbs but it would be pretty unusual in a 40 year old person um, and it would be pretty unusual for it to present in this way so those are the initial neuroanatomical thoughts based on what you've told me. Uh, fantastic. That's a, it's a, a great summary. So, just to uh, highlight one part, I guess you, you mentioned that if this collection of symptoms was due to a central cause, um, you might expect some additional symptoms, uh, and presumably that's something in the history that you might want to try and elicit. Uh, what were those ad- additional symptoms that might arise if there was a, a central, say, cord lesion causing the symptoms? Okay. So, if you had a cord lesion, then you'd be more likely to find autonomic symptoms so so sphincter symptoms um, and you might have a distinctive sensory uh, phenomenon so that would be a sensory level corresponding to the dermatomal level over the torso so those would be signs of uh, a central lesion you can't be too uh, confident because of course there are autonomic nerves within the peripheral nervous system and and peripheral nerve diseases can occasionally affect uh, the sphincter functions and then just a last thought again I don't think we really think that this is a brainstem disease but of course uh, if you did have weakness and paralysis from a brainstem lesion then you might also have effects on vital functions on breathing and you might also have eye movement abnormality and other cranial nerve palsies, depending on which level of the brainstem was affected. Okay, and so just to the one last question about the history taking, really, we're thinking this person has you know a global weakness, and um, I just wonder some of the students are going to be junior doctors in a few years, and perhaps there's some questions that you'd expect them to ask to make sure that acutely the patient is going to be safe. And any particular questions you'd like to them to perseverate on in the history. Okay, Um, so I think one key issue is whether or not we really think this is a central or peripheral problem. If it could be a spinal cord problem, you need to do a scan of the cervical spine if the arms are involved. You'd need to scan lower if only the legs were involved, obviously. But I think what you're alluding to there is that if we're concluding that this is a peripheral problem, so a neuromuscular emergency, um, and in those situations you need to be thinking about vital functions. So those can be affected if there's a focal lesion in the brainstem, but they can be also affected by diffuse neuromuscular disease, and the vital functions are breathing, so you need to determine whether someone needs ventilation not as a result of lung disease, viral disease or whatever, causing a problem within the lungs, but a problem with the mechanism of 
breathing in and out. Um, so you need to check ventilation, FVC, um, and the second equally important point really is the safety of swallowing uh, and obviously that's important for nutrition so if, if you have a neuromuscular problem that affects swallowing you can get problems with nutrition but again uh, it actually is most important for your breathing function because if you have impairment of swallowing you're at risk of aspiration and acute deterioration so if you are worried about an acute onset neuromuscular junction or neuromuscular nerve or muscle disease then you really should think about those two points. Okay so um, I'll uh, just fire through the examination and see if that changes our thoughts at all and maybe a few questions after if that's all right. So on examination the patient is alert and orientated and sat up in bed. The basic observations are all quite normal and the cranial nerve examination is also normal. The abnormalities start in the peripheral nerve exam, uh, where in the upper limbs they've got normal tone and proximally the power is quite preserved in the upper limbs, but uh, distally uh, they're quite weak and, and certainly into finger extension and the distal muscles are weaker. The reflexes in the upper limbs are absent entirely. In the lower limbs it's a similar story, but perhaps a little bit worse so the tone is normal but there's perhaps three out of five power in the proximal muscles uh, decreasing to two out of five power in the distal muscles and again the reflexes are absent in the lower limbs with mute plantar responses so i guess the patient is clearly weak and do we think the examination differentiates between a central or a peripheral cause at this stage so if the reflexes are absent uh, in a symmetric way. Occasionally that's a non-specific finding, but I think in this clinical context it's an important and relevant finding and it certainly points us away from a lesion of the upper part of the spinal cord um, because you'd expect an upper motor neuron syndrome in that scenario and that would be associated with brisk reflexes. The Lower motor neuron, of course, if you have a, a lesion of the lower motor neuron cell body, that in principle can cause absent reflexes, but by far the most important group of diseases associated with loss of reflexes is disease of nerves. So these are the long things in your arms and legs, the actual nerves, um, the nerves and the nerve roots, which is essentially the same tissue. So this sounds very much like a neuropathy, um, would be unlikely for it to be uh, a lesion of the grey matter of the cord. It's definitely not a lesion of the spinal tracts above the level in the cord. The absent reflexes also take us away from the commonest subtypes of disease at the neuromuscular junction. Mm -hmm. Myasthenia gravis would generally not be associated with reduced reflexes and also takes us away from primary disease of muscle. So what you've told us there takes us away from central causes and among the peripheral causes points quite strongly to a problem of the peripheral nerves and the nerve roots. So this would be a polyneuropathy or if we want to be very uh, posh about it, it could be a polyradiculoneuropathy, implying that the nerve roots 
and the nerves themselves could be affected. But for our purposes, a polyneuropathy. Fantastic. Okay, so uh, I guess we've localised neuroanatomically quite a lot there. And in terms of the history, which gave us a sort of seven to eight week time length of, of, of the progression of symptoms, does that point to a particular diagnosis okay. at this point? Yeah, so, so that's not the tempo of a vascular lesion, is it? And it's not the tempo of acute trauma, and there's no history of that either. It's also not the history of a degenerative process or a hereditary process. There are some hereditary diseases of the peripheral nerves. The, the, the term Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease is an umbrella term for those. So we're then thinking really about inflammatory diseases, and those typically would be primary autoimmune diseases or occasionally infective diseases. Now, in the UK, at least, infectious diseases causing peripheral neuropathy is you know, a rather rare scenario, but a condition uh, such as Lyme disease could do that. All in all, this is very likely to be a primary inflammatory autoimmune disease, and we're talking here about the group of conditions that is not Charcot-Marie-Tooth in terms of the eponym, but rather Guillain-Barre syndrome. That's the, that's the most likely group of conditions. But remind me of the timing of the condition. So by the time she presents, she's been having progressive weakness for seven or eight weeks. And I guess to make it slightly uh, more straightforward, as, as you um, assess her and as you get to know the patient for over the next week or two, she continues to progress. So we're looking at sort of nine or ten weeks of progressive weakness okay. that isn't improving. So um, Guillain-Barre syndrome is, a, is an acute peripheral nerve and nerve root condition associated with inflammation. And typically it does not continue to progress beyond four weeks. Now, there are some experts who say that whether a condition progresses over four weeks, sometimes over eight weeks, that that makes a difference in terms of advanced, specialised decision-making and diagnosis. But if you have that sort of four-week period in your mind, that's pretty reasonable. You've also got to be aware that if you give treatment for Guillain-Barre syndrome and they deteriorate after they start to lose the benefit of treatment, then that deterioration isn't the same as uh, what you'd conclude if it was the natural history. But what we're dealing with here is the other abbreviation that uh, we could have used. So I mentioned Guillain-Barre syndrome, because that's pretty well known. Mm -hmm. GBS, we say. But some people may be familiar with the other abbreviation which is AIDP, and AIDP stands for Acute Inflammatory Demyelinating Polyneuropathy or Polyradiculoneuropathy, for some. And the key letter there is the A, A standing for acute. There is a related condition, not AIDP, but CIDP, where the C stands for chronic, and as you expect, it occurs over a longer period of time, so over eight weeks. So I would say that we're moving here towards a diagnosis of CIDP. Now there are um, 
subcategories at an advanced level of practice where different portions of the peripheral nerve may be affected, the axon primarily, uh, or the myelin, mainly motor neurons or mainly sensory neurons, but that's detail at an undergraduate clinical level. Mm. Uh, so these are mainly conditions of the peripheral nerves, they're mainly inflammatory conditions of the myelin part of the peripheral nerve and the peripheral nerve roots, and the two main categories are the acute category, GBS, AIDP, where you're managing acutely with treatments that might include plasma exchange or immunoglobulin infusion, and very mindful of the safety of the patient, uh, breathing, swallowing, versus CIDP, where you're not so concerned about breathing problems, but you are concerned about ongoing management. Sometimes those patients are treated with recurrent, uh, repeated uh, infusions of immunoglobulin. Sometimes they're treated with tablets, steroids, or other more novel forms of immunomodulating tablets. Uh, but, but that's the group of conditions that we're talking about here. Fantastic. I'd like to, if that's all right, move on to the second case. Mm -hmm which I think sounds initially quite different, but perhaps we can uh, compare and contrast. So this is a case of a 50-year-old right-handed male who's an HGV driver who initially presents with double vision and imbalance. He also says that he had a flu-like illness around 10 days ago and then developed double vision for the past three days. He presents to A&E because all of a sudden this morning he's now struggling to walk without falling over, but he's certainly quite wobbly. His past medical history includes asthma and gourd, He's on a meprazole and talbutamol for those. He is a smoker and he lives at home with his wife and two children. Uh, I'm going to move straight on to the examination and maybe we can have a chat afterwards. So his observations in general are quite stable, but the abnormalities this time are in the cranial nerves. So uh, he presents with a failure of right eye abduction and his left eye is held in abduction and in down gaze, so uh, down and out. Um, his pupils are a little sluggish to respond uh, but his visual acuity and his visual field are intact. The remainder of his examination in terms of the cerebellar exam is quite normal. The peripheral exam of the upper limb and the lower limb is quite normal, apart from perhaps a little bit of weakness distally. And again, the reflexes are entirely absent, both in the upper limbs and the lower limbs. And when you stand him up to try and get him to walk, you notice that he is actually quite wobbly. He's having to use the wall to just support himself. So I think at this stage... It seems like quite a different clinical scenario, uh, and essentially we've got a gentleman who's coming with some eye movement abnormalities, ataxia, and reflexia. Are there any similarities, do you think, between this case and the previous case? Okay, well, the conceptual similarity between the two is that tension between a focal lesion and a diffuse syndrome, a diffuse lesion. So in this case... We're talking about cranial nerve signs or, or signs that would be elicited by doing a cranial nerve examination. So we're not thinking actually primarily about the cranial nerves themselves, but about the origins of the cranial nerves within the brainstem. So you could have a problem with the neural contents of the posterior fossa, uh, the cerebellum uh, and 
and the various nuclei that contribute to eye movements. That's one possibility. In truth, there's a few problems with that. Uh, One is that the patient, in some respects, is rather too well. So the patient's awake, as far as what I've been told. Um, And also there's no real evidence of a, of a, of a long-tracked syndrome, so the tracts that traverse the brainstem, uh, the corticospinal tracts, if they were lesioned in what would have to be quite a dispersed uh, focal lesion, even if it were within the brainstem, you'd usually uh, see weakness and uh, increased reflexes from that. So you could have a focal lesion, but rather like the last case, I think we're probably talking about a diffuse syndrome here. Uh, And then we're looking at the peripheral nervous system. So I would say that there's two key areas that we would need to think about here. One is the eye movement problems, Mm -hmm. and the other is the imbalance or the ataxia. Now, with the eye movement problems, uh, it could be a peripheral nerve lesion of one sort or another, but actually a lot of diseases that focus on the neuromuscular junction, myasthenia gravis being the most famous of them, Mm -hmm. uh, focus on the neuromuscular junctions of the ocular muscles. So we definitely, if a patient has an eye movement problem, doesn't conform to a single uh, oculomotor nerve, nerve 3, but also uh, nerve uh, 4 and 6, then we would need to think about myasthenia gravis uh, as a a possibility. Uh, One really quirky one, you mentioned that the pupil was affected, Mm. that sometimes that's called an internal ophthalmoplegia, And in certain settings, you'd need to think about a very rare scenario, which is infection with with botulism that can do that as a a neuromuscular problem. But that's really small print. Mm. The other aspect is the incoordination, the ataxia. And I think you didn't say specifically whether a Romberg assessment was done, but you did say that he was very unsteady when he stood. Mm. And I think that raises the possibility that this is not a central ataxia from lesion in the cerebellum, but a sensory ataxia, so that the peripheral nerve input for coordination is lacking. And of course, another point that localises to the peripheral nerves is the absent reflexes. So, so although this could be myasthenia gravis, Uh, from the eye movement signs, I think the combination of that with the ataxia suggests that this again is a peripheral nerve problem and because I've been around the block I happen to know that this special combination of ataxia, areflexia and ophthalmoplegia is a distinctive syndrome with autoimmunity against certain glycoproteins that are contributors to myelin formation 
And this is actually another variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome, so not the chronic subtype of peripheral nerve inflammatory disease, but a quirky variant which, again, has an eponym, Miller-Fisher syndrome, and this is actually much more similar, really, to GBS because it's an acute condition. It's fairly rare, but I would say that most junior doctors who go through a standard two or three year junior medical rotation would encounter one or two of these. And it so happens that it actually has a somewhat better prognosis than Guillain-Barre syndrome overall, which you know, in itself has a better prognosis if treated correctly than many severe neurological conditions. So it's, a, it's an interesting, quirky one. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Because uh, I think initially, of course, that, that case looks quite dissimilar to the, to the first case. But um, as, you, as you've said, uh, there, there are quite uh, distinct similarities that we need to bear in mind. And also the management is, is, is quite similar as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So 10, 20, 30 years ago, uh, when Guillain-Barre syndrome was treated simply with supportive treatment, mm. with no immunoglobulin given and so on, at that point there was a period where you would have been treating Guillain-Barre syndrome with immunoglobulin or with plasma exchange, but because you knew that Miller-Fisher had a more benign prognosis, you might not have gone to give those rather ambitious treatments in that era. Um, but in latter years, we almost certainly would have treated in the same way. Mm. Interestingly, immunoglobulin treatment, for various reasons, is becoming a scarce resource. It's, it's, a, it's a blood product. Mm. Um, and it's possible that over the next years, that if, if we have to limit uh, the use of immunoglobulin, that the people who might be considered as needing it less might be the Miller-Fisher group mm. within the GBS family. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly.